0: Hello and welcome to Maiden Mother Matriarch with me, Louise Perry. My guest today is Sasha Ayad. She's a licensed professional counsellor who works in private practice with teens, young adults and parents who are impacted by gender issues. Uh, She's also the co-host of Gender, a wider lens podcast and a founding board member of the Society of Evidence-Based Gender Medicine and the Gender Exploratory Therapy Association. We spoke today about Sasha's uh, earliest encounters with um, children who are experiencing gender distress because she's she's been at that, that working in counseling for a very long time so she's seen the the whole sort of uh, history of this of this phenomenon we spoke about how the phenomenon compares with multiple personality disorders which there are a lot of different historical parallels which are really interesting and we spoke about what parents should do if they're not going down the a firm route if they had taken a more sceptical approach and such had some really good practical advice for parents who are concerned about their own children. As always, you can also find this podcast at louiseperry.substack.com where you can find extended episodes, bonus episodes and the MMM chat community. Enjoy. um sashi so you've been uh practicing as a therapist for quite a long time now um which means i guess that you must have seen the emergence of completely new trends in terms of, of of young people suffering from dysphoria. what have you what have you seen from sort of the ground level in terms of who's turning up to your clinic
1: sure so i can start with kind of the the moment uh, or the time when I noticed things changing. And then I think it would be helpful to go back and talk a little bit about what other work I've done, uh, with adolescents. So around, um, and, you know, listeners may have heard me tell this story before, but I think it's really interesting. And it, it's a nice microcosm of what I think a lot of therapists have been seeing. So in the mid 2010s, I, I happened to be working as a middle school counselor. And I had been at this particular school. It was a charter school in the Houston area. And we served a population of kids with kind of a lot of needs, um, some difficulties economically, some difficulties within families. Um, But it was a a school where I had worked for a couple of years. And kids that I had known for some time um, started to, to say things like, Well, I'm not sure I'm a girl anymore. And um, I'm wearing this pronoun bracelet to indicate what pronouns to use for me today. And, you know, initially I thought, okay, this is pretty interesting. Um, but there seemed to be something very different about the way these kids were talking about like their identity and their distress that I had never seen before. And around this time, I also became very interested in what I was seeing um, in media, which is like news stories about trans kids, which conceptually was something novel. We had always heard, at least in therapy, about, you know, individuals with gender identity issues or transsexuals who decide to transition as adults. But like never before had we been talking about children as transgender. So all of these things were kind of happening concurrently, and I started reading the media articles about trans kids. And also I found all of these parent reports online where parents were saying, my kid is saying all of a sudden, you know, I'm not sure I'm a girl anymore. And my response is, well, let's take you to a therapist. You can talk it through, there might be stuff going on. And surprisingly, the therapists or doctors or professionals were kind of immediately rubber stamping the identity, which seems really premature and irresponsible. Or therapists were saying, well, this isn't my area of specialty, so I'm going to refer you to a gender clinic. And parents would then think, OK, well, gender clinic, that's a place you sort out gender issues. Not realizing, which I think people are recognizing now, that this seems to be like a conveyor belt towards the medical process. So I became shocked and confused and obsessed almost with this issue while I was working at the middle school. So like between clients at school, I would be furiously like reading things online and like getting involved in this kind of online space of parents. And I was also at the same time running our school's first GSA or Gay Straight Alliance. So it was full of middle schoolers and high schoolers. And I created this club really because I I knew some kids were Perhaps going, you know, they're gay or they don't really know if they have a lot of support for their sexual orientation at home. So I just wanted kids to have a space where they could kind of talk about things and explore these issues. And I I started to see again that there was all of this new language and new conceptualization around gender that seemed to be both interesting and exhilarating to a lot of these kids and also confusing. Like, well, what does it mean if Jane is a girl today and a boy tomorrow because she's gender fluid? Or, you know, what does it mean exactly to say, well, I feel like non-binary? And so all of this is kind of happening around the same time. And I, I began to recognize something culturally is taking place and parents and families are being treated incredibly poorly when they raise their concerns and try to get support and help for their kids who are clearly going through something important and meaningful and challenging, but not something we should just be rubber stamping. So that's kind of how the gender piece came up for me. And, you know, prior to that, around maybe 2014, 2015, I had worked in a variety of different settings with adolescents. So my practicum internship, in graduate school around 2008, was in um, a sexual violence and domestic abuse support center, which I know you have a background there too. And when I was reading your book, I was thinking, if I ever were to get so lucky to talk to Louise Perry, I'd love to talk to her about this, because it's a very interesting paradigm that I was trained in. And I've, I've come to see things a little bit differently, but it was this kind of like, abuse is about power, rape is about power um it was about like education and um of course you know destigmatizing the victim who has been in the situation so anyway i had this background supporting victims of domestic violence and sexual abuse and kids you know we ran like adolescent groups of kids who had experienced sexual abuse and then i worked with um, adults in a residential treatment facility who have very severe mental illness and um, intellectual disabilities. So these were individuals with like an IQ below I think was 75, something like that, who had concurrent mental health complications, who ranged in their kind of needs from people who cannot physically care for themselves all the way to people who are ambulatory, walking around, but have like really complex personality disorders and things like that. Um, And I worked with autistic kids for some years doing in-home therapy with families, which was really intimate. And it taught me a lot about young kids on the autism spectrum. So it was interesting to have this kind of confluence of different work experiences, which in a way like set me up to really um, look at the gender distress that we're seeing now from a lot of different lenses rather than, oh, this is a trans kid and there's one way to support them, which is a firm. So I know I just talked a lot, but that is kind of an overall, like, view of where I've come from and where I've landed now in my role as a therapist.
0: So, so right from the get go, you were a bit skeptical of the affirm model, just because as you say, it seems to go against so much that the, the standard practice generally in any kind of therapeutic treatment. Um mm-hmm. did you have sort of political or feminist misgivings or was it really just as a clinician that you were concerned?
1: I think it was a little bit of both including even some personal experience so when I was in undergrad and grad school I took a lot of sociology courses I took some feminist courses and I as a young person had my own kind of twisty windy road of figuring out my own sexual orientation so I had a little bit of skepticism that things are very black and white, especially in the lives of of adolescents and especially in the context of um, gender-related norms, gender-related pressures, um, what it means to be a teenage girl versus a teenage boy. I thought that these things were complex and um, I've always been really interested in group behavior. Like I almost went down the social psychology route because I was very interested in how do individuals operate in the context of groups. So that interest of mine also, um, you know, led me to be really interested in things like toxic groups or cults or extremist religions. So like I've always been interested in that aspect of things as well. Um, so I think I had a little bit of kind of political misgivings about how how much the dsm criteria for example for gender identity disorder as it was then called or gender dysphoria now it's so much based on stereotypes and it's so in some ways overlapping with the experience of gay adults who will look back in their childhood history or even their current experience of masculinity and femininity and say you know I sometimes feel kind of this incongruence with being female but having really masculine traits, for example, or getting along or, or enjoying the same interests as a lot of men. Meanwhile, I'm female, so I occupy this kind of third gender space. So those things are actually a very normal part of consolidating a sexual orientation for lots of gay and lesbian and bisexual adults. So all of these reasons made me skeptical and of course having worked with adolescents for so long we know how susceptible they are to peer influence and that's not a criticism it's like a thing we all went through you become porous your identity is very malleable at that time and that's important because that's the period of life where we're trying to sort ourselves into who we fit in with where do we land you know in these kind of social landscapes we're part of so All of that made me suspicious, and just the 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 rapidity with which doctors were agreeing with a child's self-declaration made me really suspicious. And I guess another layer on top of that, which we haven't even touched on yet, was the internet and how that played a role. So specifically, there was a young woman that I had been working with for some time at this school. I knew her really well. We had a very good rapport, but she had some challenges in terms of connecting socially with others, sometimes kind of having, um, she'd get fixated on a specific teacher that she really didn't like, for example. And she, she was a little bit, uh, I would suspect she probably had some traits of autism, undiagnosed. And anyway, you know, at one point she told a teacher, I don't think I want you to call me by my birth name anymore. And the teacher said, what do you mean? She said, I don't think I'm a girl. And so the teacher referred her to me. We had worked together a lot. And in the course of having this converse many conversations with her, it became really clear. She would admit, well, I was on Tumblr and I was looking stuff up. This was at the time when Tumblr was a really big thing. And she had all of this really sophisticated sounding jargon about various identity labels and binders and like all of these things that she you know, self-reported was coming from Tumblr, an internet chat website full of other teenage girls who are distressed about their bodies. And I thought, you know, there's something um very persuasive about a young person coming to a professional with sophisticated sounding language. And I think what's happening is doctors are like, you know, I've heard this even in gender affirmative conferences well, let the patient educate you because this is a marginalized group and we don't know much about them. So allow the patient to educate you. And at the time I was like, no, Like, there's also a chance that these kids are getting confused by reading a lot of like big fancy sounding words and making themselves seem like they've deliberately, carefully thought this through and this is what they want. Like I wanna get a top surgery or I want a binder when really they might be kind of being swept along in a tide you know, of other adolescents who are finding these things really meaningful. So lots of different reasons why I was skeptical from the beginning, which I think is interesting because the more clinicians that I talk to, what I'm starting to notice is clinicians who initially started off going along with the affirmation approach. Like we're seeing this now with whistleblowers, both in the UK and here in the US. They went along with it at first. There was this little part of their instinct that said, I feel like something is weird about this, but I want to be a good person. I don't want to be transphobic. Let me put aside my biases so that I can trust the experts. You know, we have people who are coming from very prestigious universities and teaching hospitals and they're teaching us that this is what you do. So like, I don't know what confluence of personality traits and or life experiences or factors caused me to be skeptical from the beginning, but I never really bought into the affirmation approach. And when I started my practice in 2016, I kind of naively thought, I think people are confused. And if I write a couple of good, you know, articles and I work with some patients and talk to people about what I'm seeing, Nobody would want to medicalize kids if it's unnecessary, right? So everything will just course correct. Like that was obviously grandiose and naive at the same time. <laughs> um but I I I started my practice and got absolutely bombarded by parents who had nowhere to turn, which was confusing and shocking. Like how has the entire profession of psychology just forgotten everything that we know? I didn't understand. Like I very naively did not understand the force of Kind of the activism, the political pressure, the absolute silencing of debate—I did not realize how powerful those forces were until I got thrust into it. And then I have many, many stories which helped me learn those lessons. At this point,
0: so when you say you were bombarded with contact from uh, from parents, these were these parents whose children had been diagnosed with 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 gender identity disorder or whatever, or expressing some of these ideas, and were themselves skeptical, but just had felt like they had no support from there from from other um, clinicians?
1: Yeah, these were parents who felt like something complicated was going on with their kids. Usually there was some sort of precipitating event like, you know, for example, COVID was a big one, but I started my practice before COVID. But, you know, a precipitating event might look like, um, you know, my, my daughter changed schools from elementary to middle school, she lost her entire friend group uh she started having really serious social anxiety and then you know over the summer locked herself in her room binge watched youtube videos and came you know came to us at the end of summer with a letter saying i need to transition before the next school year out of the blue and then these kinds of parents were of course that's just one example there are lots of different stories but that that's the flavor of it and these parents were again taking their kids to professionals expecting to to get you know, careful, exploratory help. And the professionals were saying to these parents, that your child is now a boy. You need to start referring to your daughter as a he. And I will refer you to the endocrinologist to talk about puberty blockers or hormones, depending on the the age of the child. And parents were absolutely flabbergasted. So they felt like something is wrong, but, you know, there's something incredibly powerful about an authority figure telling you, your your child is at serious risk of suicide. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that one before too. Like if you don't do this, your child will have a greater risk of suicide. And also, well, actually the entire paradigm of how you've been thinking about this is wrong. And, and sometimes parents in a, an attempt to be supportive or an attempt to see how this might play out would attempt visiting a gender clinic or like a gender support group for parents. And the experience that they would have there is like, Certain types of questions are criticized and belittled. You just have to go along. You have to be supportive and excited and you cannot mess up on the pronouns. And the more you put aside your own instinct and follow this prescription about social transition, the more happy your child will be when, in fact, that was not always the case. And it's really soul crushing. I mean, you're, you're a parent. It's soul crushing to have a deeply felt instinct about what your child needs and then force yourself to do something diametrically opposed to that. And so th- the emotional and psychological toll on these parents is so hard to describe. It's palpably excruciating.
0: Yeah. And on the flip side as well, I, I, I uh, this is something that Helen Joyce has, has spoken about. Mm-hmm. Um, she came on the podcast recently and uh the 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 inverse of that is the parents who did go along with mm. the, the the affirmation model and did put their child on a medical pathway and maybe now you know a child has had radical surgeries or hormone interventions which can't be reversed, and now that it seems as if the whole sort of edifice of 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 the narrative is, is collapsing actually those parents have a very strong incentive to cling onto it because how awful to come to terms with the idea as a parent that you have you know permanently assisted in the permanent disfiguration of your child's body basically because you were swept up in a sort of ideological movement and i can completely see you know like the the horror as a parent of feeling like you've hurt your child in any way i can completely can see how parents would double down um but equally you know like the whole as you as you're describing this whole fiasco basically arrived because of people not doing not being honest and not doing due diligence and Maiden Mother Matriarch is brought to you by Keeper, the world's most advanced matchmaking solution. Now, many of you will know that I'm normally extremely suspicious of dating apps like Tinder and Bumble, which tend to produce repeat customers who must endure endless, miserable hookups and short term relationships without ever finding a spouse. Well, Keeper is a completely different kind of service. Its algorithm prioritises immediate attraction, but also, crucially, long-term compatibility, because forever is the goal. Everyone in the Keeper matchmaking pool is there because they want to find a spouse. Using psychometric tests like Big Five, IQ and masculine-feminine polarity, Keeper can accurately predict who you're going to have the strongest chemistry with. The platform only gives you a match if you are an exact fit psychometrically and if the match offers everything that you've told Keeper you're looking for in a partner. It won't waste your time with only good enough matches like other dating apps and matchmaking services will. So find your Keeper at Keeper.ai. That's K-E-E-P-E-R rai A-I.
1: Mm hmm. Yeah, I I think that's true. And I'm sure that's true in some cases. I mean, this is whenever whenever we are trying to wrap our minds around a phenomenon, I think we all as as commentators, as concerned parties, try to summarize it or create archetypes. But there are so many complicated stories that are really different here. So I think what I would like to say is, I completely agree that there are going to be some families who, even in the face of evidence that this might have been an unnecessary medical intervention, will double down. And I think the power of narrative in the life of a human being is huge. And so there will be families that just continue to tell themselves This was life-saving intervention for my child. If we had not done this, my child would not have been able to be his or her authentic self. Like That's a story that I think will carry a lot of families on. But what we're starting to see now, which is really interesting because at first I was seeing much more of the parent who from the beginning felt like something was weird about this. But what I'm starting to see now are a lot of families who are having that kind of wake up moment that you're describing. And who are doing something incredibly brave and terrifying and saying, oh, my God, I don't know if this was the right move for my kid. And I'm terrified that we have done something wrong. And and to those families, what I often say is, you know, I may not use this language, but like you are not living on an island just coming up with these ideas out of the blue, There is an entire infrastructure of the APA, the Endocrine Society, all of these organizations, all of these physicians. You go to Stanford University and their entire medical team is all kind of chiming in with the same idea that this is life-saving intervention. This is what loving parents do. And the pressure to conform is astronomical, especially when oftentimes in the background of some of these stories are... Actual mental health dis- disorders and complications and suicide attempts and kids who are really struggling. And so if you, you know, if you think about the exhaustion of having a teenager who's just very, very much struggling to function, and then in comes this competent looking medical team that says all of those distress points that you were, you were experiencing before may have been a symptom of gender dysphoria. And once the gender dysphoria is treated, we may see all of this resolve. And don't worry, puberty blockers are just a pause button. It gives you time to think. Do you know how much relief parents feel when they've been in and out of mental health hospitals and their kid is literally like trying to hurt themselves all the time and they think they're going to get a pause button? So I-, I absolutely agree that in some cases, there are parents perhaps who have been, you know, on the, flippant side or they haven't really been that invested in trying to understand this but a lot of people are coming to realize we were being pressured in a very manipulative way by competent seeming professionals who made us feel really certain that this was the only pathway like if you take your kid to a gender clinic and they have gender distress You're not going to hear, well, there are lots of different ways we could support your kid. We could focus on just psychological exploration and experimenting with clothes, or we could do this or we could do that. No, it's like puberty blockers are almost a first line of defense to supposedly buy time. And then what people don't recognize is like theoretically you're buying time, but in practice, something like 99% of people who go on puberty blockers go on to medicalize. So it's actually the start button of a medical process. But parents aren't really told that. Like, you know, you, you've you seen in um Hannah Barnes's new book in the UK, people are really not informed about what they are signing their kids up for. So there's a really serious kind of responsibility on the physicians who almost refuse to look at the data. Like, I'm shocked that here in the U.S., You have physicians doubling and tripling down on these interventions, while the most progressive pioneering countries have all slowed down: Sweden, Finland, UK. So something weird is happening here that seems to be motivated by a kind of worldview, like it's this twisted worldview about childhood gender that clouds the judgment of otherwise, you know, seemingly very competent, intelligent people.
0: Uh, Something that a friend of mine, who's a, a A clinical psychologist once told me, really stayed with me um, about, you know, actually among quite a lot of clinicians and and, and psychiatrists in particular, actually um, scepticism about the sort of um, biomedical model of depression is actually quite common. Um, it's not, maybe more in the UK, I don't know, in the US, but, you know, it's not actually uncommon to to, to come across psychiatrists who have a very sort of sophisticated critique of the whole idea of um, depression and anxiety has been entirely a consequence of, like, Mm. brain chemistry gone awry. Um, And actually, you know, we know that it's much more often a reaction to difficult life circumstances and is much better treated by trying to change those circumstances rather than just giving someone a drug. But patients um very very often do not want to hear that they don't want to be told no the problem isn't like a chemical problem in your brain the problem is actually that you know you've got xyz problems in your life and they're making you unhappy and of course they're making you unhappy because you know you're a human being and and that's that's actually that's actually a healthy response sometimes to sort of what's sometimes called slightly tongue-in-cheek by um british doctors um shit life syndrome (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah. no one wants
0: to be diagnosed with shit life syndrome when instead you could be offered a basically a magic pill that will make you better so actually it's very often it's actually coming from the patients the push towards the biomedicalization not actually necessary yeah. from from the medical side and i completely get what you're saying you know if you're a parent whose child is desperately unhappy and you're told there's this lovely simple diagnosis and a simple set of interventions which will solve it like of course you'd leap at it wouldn't you
1: Yeah. And I think like with some of these families, what predates the gender diagnosis, let's say, is an implicit belief in that biomedical model, right? So these are kids, and we hear this a lot when we're kind of hearing about ROGD as a phenomenon. These are kids who already have a long list of diagnoses. So these are families who again it's very reasonable if this is the 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 trend or the way that the profession professionals address distress why would you not trust the professionals but these are parents who have already bought into like well 2 years ago my kid was diagnosed with ADHD and then last year they got di- diagnosed with a depression so they're already racking up a list of diagnoses for which the treatments have been medical interventions. Not always, but these are kids like, oh, my kid's on Selexa or my kid's on Prozac or whatever. So it, it, it kind of follows that like, it's almost like a, an archaeologist uncovering new diagnoses within the psyche of this child. So if, if that's the paradigm that you have been using, it's not a huge leap, right? To, to go onto some other because, you know, I'm not an expert in this, but I I am aware that the history of diagnostic criteria and diagnostic statistics within the population have expanded tremendously. And like in the 50s or 60s, very few people qualified to be diagnosed with something like anxiety or depression. I mean, those definitions have changed a lot over time, but what we're seeing now is like, it is absolutely garden variety that all these kids have diagnoses. And I would guess it's probably a combination of they are both literally more anxious and depressed. And also these these notions have expanded in a way that might be gobbling up, you know, normal things that are now pathologized. It's, it's really complicated. There are a lot of moving parts here.
0: Mm-hmm. I spent some time um, many years ago now um doing some research on um multiple personality disorder what's now more often called dissociative identity disorder and the whole i mean it is an it's an amazing historical comparison to what we've seen recently although actually i don't think that the multiple personalities sort of phenomenon was ever as big and as culturally influential as as trans phenomenon has been but there are a lot of ways in which it, that they echo each other and um You know, reading the history, again, you got to say, like, you can completely see why patients were drawn to this and why patients' families were drawn to this and how it sort of makes sense. You know, if you have, say, borderline personality disorder or other, or, or maybe psychosis, or, you know, there are lots of sort of Experiences that you could have on a subjective level that could feel as if you have different people living in your head, and, and if and if and if that's the model that you're offered, you can see how you could seize on it, um, and combined with all this kind of identity stuff and a massive media hype around it, and all of this, completely get it. But the thing that I uh, one of the prompts for me that why I went to go research it. And I wonder if you had the same experience working in sexual and domestic violence services is that we still on the helpline had a lot of women calling us who had dissociative identity disorder or presented with that. And often it was women who were like middle aged, right? So they were women who had been diagnosed maybe as teenagers had been exactly that age when this was um, a big deal and where it was in the media, but also when you had a lot of clinicians who were you know sometimes actually being pretty shamelessly sort of careerist about it and were and were actually making a name for themselves by being specialists in this you know basically quack theory um and they you know a lot of those clinicians moved on the media moved on the whole kind of circus of this like culture bound syndrome moved on but actually the patients didn't get to move on because the patients were extremely vulnerable individuals and you now still decades later have these women who are still really like tightly bound to this diagnosis and it causes them all sorts of problems in their life and they're often very traumatized individuals and i think that must that's going to happen with this too you know like the the circus will move on there will become a new fashionable Well, I say fashionable in a dismissive way. I mean, we know that teenage girls in particular are extremely vulnerable to contagious mental illnesses. There will be new contagious mental illnesses. There will be new, you know, uh, areas of interest for um, for media and for cutting edge research and so on. But actually, you're probably still in decades time going to still have patients who are still like clinging to this diagnosis and it's worse than multiple personality disorder because this diagnosis involves irreparable medical changes to your body. And I, and and I really felt reading that history and, and looking now as well, you know, you, you can't, you can't blame the, the patients. You can't blame the families. You can completely understand, you know, how people could be swept up in it. If there's anyone to blame, it is probably maybe a minority of professionals who actually just were not responsible enough at all and were not skeptical enough and often actually really hurt their patients um and sometimes made money out of it in a really cynical way
1: i i agree and i've definitely looked into this a lot trying to understand these kind of patterns that we've seen in the history of psychiatry i i couldn't agree more um i think it's interesting I don't remember because I also worked on the helpline. I think that's almost like a some sort of initiation rite of passage when you work in a domestic violence center. But I don't remember that being the case. I'd be really curious. I also have a notoriously poor memory. So I'd be curious if I was able to connect with anyone there if they had that experience. But um, my co-host on the podcast, Stella O'Malley, and I co-wrote some chapters for a new book called Cynical Therapies and it talks about it's a it's an anthology with several different authors and we all talk about the way that a certain type of social contemporary social justice ideology has impacted the field of therapy and in our chapters we we talk about dissociative identity disorder repressed memories multiple personalities and there's something incredibly similar about it um and you hear too from some detransitioners who are talking about their experiences now that it 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 really yeah. is the therapist that continue to offer suggestions there's like this planting of a seed and um the more you entertain a possibility the more that possibility can grow and You can look at it as a a recognition of something that was always there that I didn't realize. Or I think a lot of detransitioners in hindsight. This was a suggestion that had some powerful steps associated with it. That promised me kind of salvation from my distress. And I really wanted that. So I I couldn't agree more. It's um, It's incredibly similar. And for anybody listening, maybe I can send these to you for show notes. I would recommend reading Ethan Waters, um, he is a journalist who's covered this extensively. And there was a recent piece called something like The Forgotten Lessons of Repressed Memory Syndrome or something like that. That's really interesting. And I think um, it's fascinating that Dr. Diane Aronsaft is somebody who not everyone may know because she's not very online or in social media, but she is really one of the pioneers of this entire concept of the trans kid. She's a developmental psychologist who's been writing about this for decades, and she has some very um, extreme views about what constitutes a gender communication, for example. So she's now infamous for giving a a lecture or a talk where she says a baby ripping open uh, his onesie is a gendered communication, turning it into a dress, because this is actually a transgender girl baby. And then another one of like a little baby girl who rips a barrette out of her hair. But actually, that's a gendered communication about truly being a boy. So, I mean, out of context, this is a little bit batshit crazy, if I can use that terminology. But actually, when you read Diane Aronsaft's extended papers... She's she's actually grounded a lot of her arguments in really well thought out developmental theories of identity development and things like that. But what I I bring this up because she was one of the proponents of this repressed memory theory that that a person which this goes in line with dissociative identity disorder, the idea was that a person can experience severe abuse. And there was actually a bit of a panic about Satanism and ritual abuse. I think it was in the 80s. And so these these theorists said, you know, we can experience extreme abuse, but because it's so overwhelming to the psyche, we can completely repress it. And or our psyche can split into multiple different people so that we can distribute the trauma, so to speak, and tolerate it better. And so this, this theory is really what spawned an entire movement in the psychiatric profession of training about this, education about this, suggesting um, language and strategies to help extract these memories and discover personalities. And so really what you, what you have is somebody like Diane Aronsaft was a big proponent of that as well. And she has papers about how therapists can help clients discover they're different personalities. And of course, now she's kind of just transferred that philosophy onto gender, help a person discover their many genders. And she has ridiculous sounding labels like a gender Oreo and a gender smoothie, which is like a little male on top and a little male on the bottom and a little female in the middle. I don't know. I mean, it's just so ridiculous, right? But but the, the framework, I think, underlying all of these is that human psyche is completely mysterious. It operates in ways that are never obvious, but what that means is you could take an absolutely esoteric and completely unfounded theory and run with it. And I think the same thing is true for gender. And one of the things I often find myself saying, you know, when when I'm talking with parents or or clients is that there's always a grain of truth. And I think you alluded to this, too, Louise. Like, it can make sense that you have different parts of you. It can make sense. You know, I can think about times in my own history where I was fascinated with the idea of boys standing up to pee. So there was literally a gendered question in my mind there. But because I didn't have this suggestion that that was incredibly important, I kind of like thought about it a little bit when I was probably 13 or 14 and let it go and just moved on. And with repressed memories, we can all think of like, I kind of have this weird flash of memory about something weird that happened when I was eight, but I can't tell if it was real or not. And if somebody had dedicated an hour a week to sit there and they, they were often using sedative medication too. So like imagine if you had dedicated an hour a week of your life to uncover that fragment of a memory and build upon it and build upon it and like hypnosis and medication. We could all develop these really strong aspects of mental distress. So we're, humans are super suggestible, you know, and it's so important I think for therapists to hold that in a responsible way and like you said, these clinicians are not being responsible with the suggestibility of people.
0: And I think in particular teenage girls. I mean teenagers in general, but we know that um there are all sorts of interesting ways in which teenage girls are particularly sort of socially attuned you know like there's interesting stuff in linguistics for instance about the fact that teenage girls are often very innovative with language and slang and are particularly sort of um, they're often the earliest adopters of new slang because they're just so they're very sensitive to social status they're very just interested in people they're very sort of socially orientated and also very groupish and also very spongy and that's yeah i'm you know, and it makes sense it's that the, the, there are there are a bunch of evolutionary theories as to why this might be you know one of them is it 's a point in your life where you 're particularly vulnerable to sexual violence, and there's actually there's an advantage in building um strong social relationships with other women, which is because that has a protective function you're also likely to be having you know your first children in long pre-contraception days, you know, so, so again, having like networks with other young women and other uh, like being very socially sensitive is, is advantageous. So, you know, it's, it's not a bad trait by any means, but it's a trait that can lend itself very easily to some harmful, contagious ideas. You know, the anorexia was, was I, I'm guessing the, probably the, the contagious mental illness just before this one. Um, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure I've seen data showing actually that rates of um, anorexia diagnoses literally did this with gender, you know, <laughs> because you had exactly the same type of young women who would previously have been drawn to eating disorders, often mediated by the Internet, which we've already spoken about a little bit. But the earlier days of the Internet, you know, the pro-ana forums and whatever, now just kind of smoothly transitioning to this new to this new thing. Um, it's the same populations you know and it's the same populations who historically were diagnosed with hysteria you know that Salem the, the Salem witch phenomenon started with teenage girls you know like it's it's we know that this is a thing and it's amazing that there hasn't been more skepticism <laughs> people who latched onto this and, and didn't recognize the fact that this is this is not new you know
1: Yeah. And I mean, even the mechanisms are not dissimilar when you think about, well, first of all, I think you're so right that young women tend to be much more uh, attuned to social interaction and social cues. And therefore, I mean, the the positive side of that, it helps them create cohesive groups and feel like part of an in-group. And then the downside of that is, of course, just imitation and ending up you know, being quite, quite similar and porous to adopting both positive and negative traits from your peers, I think it also leads to social anxiety, which we've seen spike dramatically because girls are, and especially the girls I work with, they're like hyper attuned to how others might be thinking of them. Um, So rather than being kind of oblivious to what others think. Like some people will say, well, don't these girls realize they don't look like boys? Well, they're so hyper paranoid and self-monitoring all the time that they're like thinking about the voice that they're using every second. And like, how does my hair look? It's It's an obsession. And the mechanisms with eating disorder are not dissimilar. So eating disorders are a kind of type of fixation with the body and the physical self. It is an attempt to control the appearance of the body through a a set of behaviors around eating and exercise. And with gender dysphoria, you have a very similar thing. It's an obsession with how your body is perceived by others and a micromanagement of how I stand, do my breasts show, um, is is my facial hair growing? I mean, it's like a a highly detail-oriented fixation on the physical appearance. Now that's not always the way it manifests. Like I am seeing kind of buckets of types of girls with gender identity distress, but there's definitely a type that looks incredibly similar to eating disorders. And actually there's some overlap because if you look in the online forums where, you know, trans identified kids are talking to one another about how to pass, you see a lot of things in there about manipulating your diet, your nutrition, your exercise. So again, the leap from one to the other is not as big as people think. And I think part of the reason why there hasn't been a lot of connecting the dots is that there's such a vehement attempt to make it seem as though this type of distress is so different and it's not understandable if you're cis, right? That's where that kind of social justice, hierarchy thing comes into play. If you are cis, you cannot understand. You should not have an opinion. You should be deferential. You should center the voices of the marginalized group. All you should do is listen. And of course, there's a place for that. We have to listen to people's experiences so that we can understand what they're going through. But as a woman who myself has struggled with disordered eating and complicated feelings about my body and what it means to be thin or strong or fit or beautiful or whatever... I'm allowed to bring my experience to the table as I look at something happening culturally and try to understand it. So I think the trans activism movement has been so successful at making people scared to think and scared to have a question or draw a connection or notice something that's familiar to them. And Victoria Smith, who you also spoke with, I think, right? She was on our podcast and she talked about this, that her own experience with eating disorder actually made her look at gender dysphoria in a way that she recognized something in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really want to ask you about, I mean, we've spoken about, What not to do when a child presents to you with these kind of feelings um I want to talk to you about uh, about what you think is a good path for parents to choose because there may be parents listening and watching whose whose children have gone through exactly this and are wondering exactly this question but as a as a sort of segue into that um because we were just talking about diet nutrition I know that we are both power lifters yes (laughs) right and I personally have found and and I've never suffered from disordered eating, but I know that there are quite a lot of women in powerlifting who have and who have found it actually to be a really, really helpful sport for them because it's a way of kind of reconceptualizing the point of their body um, in that they can, they can, when they're prioritizing their own strength, which also requires that they feed themselves properly and requires that they do all this kind of basic, basic self-care, it can be really transformative um and and I, it's 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 a way of returning to the body but in like a positive way not in a in a in a self in a self-harming way uh so first question is have you found this with powerlifting? and and you know and 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 linked to that you know is that the sort of thing the sort of a, a, like a a positive reconceptualization of the body is that the sort of thing that parents might be able to encourage in in, in daughters who are struggling with these kind of gender feelings
1: Yes, I love this question because I don't really get to talk about this very much. So this is so, this is so fun for me. And I think if you are a listener and you're not really part of this strength, um, strength world versus bodybuilding world, you may not understand the differentiation. So I just want to spend a second there because this actually is part of my story. I have been interested in exercise, generally speaking, since I was probably around 18 years old. And I started out really in the kind of physique world I remember looking at like physique women's bodybuilding magazines where these are women who are very very lean they're muscular and in the 90s and and 2000s when I was reading these magazines it was like oh I eat broccoli and chicken and that's like all I eat until competition and then I get on stage in a bikini and You know, you're judged on symmetry and the way your muscles um, are developed and whether you've been able to get lean enough to demonstrate your muscles. So it's very much an aesthetic focus. But powerlifting is a strength-based sport where your goal is to feed your body and fuel your performance so that you can lift heavier and heavier weights. And you're not judged on your physique at all. And in fact, when you look at a lot of powerlifters, There are weight classes, so people do have to moderate their calorie intake to some degree. But these are women who are strong and often maybe um, bigger in terms of body fat than we might imagine like an athlete to look like. So this is a huge paradigm shift. and Only in the last couple of years have I started to train for strength rather than training for size or aesthetic. And the shift has been tremendous and it really changes your relationship with food, with sleep, with like how you care for yourself, as you said. So one of the things I, I do often encourage parents to do to go back to your question is, you know, I think the big thing comes before even the body image stuff. I think the big thing is this movement of affirmation and activism disempowers parents and robs them of their authority. So the number one thing, especially if you have a child who's young and still lives in your home, parents have to get very clear on what they believe. Do your research. Don't listen to just me or just Louise. Do your research and think about it for yourself. What do you think about these concepts and what do you think your child needs? And once you get really clear, you have to use that as a matrix when you are making decisions. So if you believe that socially transitioning your child and going along with the sudden declaration might lead them down the road to medical interventions, and you don't want to do that, you need to make sure that the other adults in your child's life and the other support systems in place are not going to work at cross purposes with your goals. Parents have to come back into the driver's seat of their child's decisions and their child's life. So that would be the first thing. And if that means working with this therapist that my kid's been seeing for six months is actually not congruent with our family's decision-making, change therapists or stop seeing a therapist Parents have a lot more um, love and and authority and power to support their kids than they probably think. So I'm often recommending as a first step, don't be so dependent on professionals. You have a lot of wisdom and and love and knowledge about your child. You need to come back into the driver's seat here so that you can make decisions about your child. Number two, it's really helpful to expand your child's world. What often happens with these gender dysphoric kids is that everything becomes about gender and the child might think, oh, I can't participate in that activity because I have gender dysphoria or because I'm insecure or because I have anxiety. And we also know when it comes to anxiety, the best way to diminish it is to actually put yourself in situations where you're doing kind of hard things and succeeding at those. And it's not always smooth, there's bumps in the road, but like keep your child engaged, busy, hold them to high expectations with things like academics and school and participating in family life. Do not just capitulate to your child like locking themselves in their bedroom for, you know, 15 hours a day and not participating in life. Take a a family road trip if you can. Get out, experience new things, get somebody out of their bubble figure out how to mitigate social media influence and like the screen time. It's so hard because these kids are exhibiting like addiction behaviors. And so sometimes I hear families say, well, I don't really know how to get her off screens. I told her it's not good for her, but she, she doesn't care. It's like, well, if there's a heroin addict and you put them in a room full of heroin, it's not fair to blame the addict for using the drugs that they're surrounded by. So it's like, You know, if you have a young child, parents really need to kind of step into their place of making decisions and implementing some boundaries and structure and following through with it. And it it takes a lot of work. I mean, parents really have to reorient themselves to parenting in this kind of deliberate way. And a lot of changes are often made just on like a personal level and like logistical level and lifestyle level. But it also brings families together in a tremendous way. Like success stories that I've heard are not just like, oh, my daughter desisted, but it's like, this was a wake up call that there were some things not working really well. And like our relationship with our kid now is really, really strong. And maybe she's still working through the gender stuff, but i really reconnected with her and our family's a lot stronger because of it. Like that is a success story, regardless of the gender identity outcome.
0: Mm-hmm. I think a lot of parents who are uh, kind of in a progressive milieu and and, and and generally want to be holding to sort of liberal values when it comes to parenting, they don't want to be authoritarians, they they often reach out to me as well um, around um, issues to do with sex and say, you know, I'm really anxious about my children. I don't want them, whatever, watching porn or having early sexual relationships or et cetera. But I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be like I don't want to be that strict, horrible, whatever, that ogre figure, and um, and I I, I don't know what to say because, uh, like, unfortunately, I think to some extent you do, you know, your job as a parent. I say this as someone who's my my I only have a toddler, so it's easy for yeah. at this stage <laughs> in our lives because I can be as authoritarian as I like, you know. But um, with teenagers, it's not your job to be their friend. Unfortunately, (laughs) because that would be easier. Um, Sometimes you have to be the person setting boundaries and actually it is good for your children and they will thank you eventually. So things like, you know, I, I honestly don't think that it is a good idea for parents to allow kids to have alcohol and drug fueled parties without parental supervision. You know, yes, like that. That's one example of, you know, parents don't parents are going away for the weekend and they don't they don't know what their teenagers are doing. Basically, and there's no one checking in on them. They've they've got the house to themselves and access to the liquor cupboard. You know what I mean? Like, it's 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 a classic kind of uh, permissive parenting thing to do, and it's considered actually very normal. But you are setting yourself, you are putting your teenagers in in some really perilous situations by permitting that. And sometimes, actually, you do have to be the ogre and say like, "No, you're coming on this holiday or whatever." You know, you're or 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 I'm 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 not letting you have access to. Um, I'm not letting you go to that party on on your own, or you know whatever it is. um It's hard because it's quite countercultural um,
1: i i I think um this is a very common challenge. I think parents often want to to parent from this egalitarian place, which gives their child a lot of room. To make mistakes, learn from their mistakes, become, you know, their authentic self. And they also want to ensure that their child always feels comfortable coming to them. But I think what parents may not understand is that actually your child needs, needs you to create some safety guardrails for them. So if you frame it from the perspective of like, my child is wading into deep waters and she or he doesn't actually know how to swim, is it imposing to hold out and provide like a life raft for them by using my arm to buoy them while they swim? Or is that actually what they need so they can get through it, right? Like their brain is a scrambled teenage brain They're swimming amidst a sea of incredibly confusing, wrong ideas about your body, gender, how to make yourself feel better. And they need you. They need you to help them because they don't have any other help. Their teachers are not going to tell them the truth. Their peers are not going to tell them the truth. And they're lost. I mean, they're really struggling. So it's being authoritarian is not the same thing as being authoritative, right? Like, so the authoritative parenting style described by psychologist Diana Baumrind is like a lot of warmth, lots of love, lots of affection, listening, asking your child what they think. But then you stepping in as a parent and say, look, I hear you. I see that this is important. I've been doing my research and my job is to keep you safe. So we're not going to do A, B and C. You can be mad at me, right? You're a kid. You're doing your job. I'm doing my job and I love you and we'll get through it. Like that's that's really what kids need to get to get through these complicated times.
0: It's obviously much simpler when you have an almost 2-year-old, but something I do say to my son quite often is it is my job to do x, you know. It is my job to get you dressed, to change your nappy, to put you down for your nap or whatever and you, you know, I'm I know it makes you unhappy in this moment, but it is my job. <laughs> yeah um I want to talk more in the um extended section uh about the response some of the responses that you've had to being outspoken on this and being and being kind of heterodox on this um but first for uh, just following on from uh, you know advice to any parents who are, who are worried about this if you do want to find a, a a therapist for your child how would you recommend going about finding someone who's sort of on the right page? Um, And indeed, also finding other support communities from other parents or whatever. You know, what help is there out there if you are are coming at it at the affirmative model from a sceptical perspective?
1: There is actually a lot of information and resources out there now, which was not the case a few years ago. So um, I, I think parents equipping themselves with parenting strategies and tools is the most important thing. I've really dedicated a lot of my efforts to creating that kind of information material. So I'd say first parents need to get clear on what they think and how they want to parent. If you absolutely feel like you need a therapist, um, there are a couple of things to keep in mind. So first of all, you have to interview therapists very carefully and you have to get a sense of where they stand on this. Generally speaking, my opinion is if a therapist says, Oh, um, You know, I have never heard of rapid onset gender dysphoria, but it sounds like a conspiracy theory. You're probably not going to find a lot of uh, collaboration with a therapist like that. So I would start with kind of open-ended questions, get a sense of, are they familiar with this? What's their opinion on this? And if they say something like, well, my job is to kind of affirm the gender identity of the client and support them in their goals, that also means probably not going to be a collaborative relationship. I would probably start with an organization like GETA, which is a, a group that I started along with a couple of colleagues. It's about gender exploration, and you can find us on genderexploratory.com or .org. I'll, I'll send you the, sh- the link to make sure. And so this is a, a community of therapists who are like-minded and who agree to this kind of membership statement about how we conceptualize gender distress and so this is a, also a directory. So you can look for therapists who are in your local area, but I would use the same strategies. I would interview people. I would see if they're a good fit. And I would just be really careful because um, having a therapist who's working in conjunction with the family can be really transformative it could be great to have someone else in your child's life who's kind of echoing a similar sentiment of like exploring is okay but permanent decisions need to wait like just having that reinforcement is really helpful and again if your therapist is working cross purposes with you it can really undermine your strategy so i would just be really cautious about it
0: all right you've um you've mentioned already uh one site that people can um can can find more of your work and find more support um where else can people people find more of you uh,
1: well there are a couple of things so <clears throat> I have a podcast called gender a wider lens which you can find on all the major platforms that host podcasts um I, I co-host it with Stella O'Malley who's a psychotherapist in Ireland and we deep dive into all of these topics we talk with brilliant guests. Um, we talk about parenting and gender and the cultural aspects. So you can check me out there. I also have a parent membership group where I, um, create videos and do Q and A's with parents all about these types of topics. So you can find more information at inspiredteentherapy.com therapy.com. And, um, you'll find me in a lot of other places like Geta, for example, and, uh, There's probably others that I'm blanking on right now, but those are the main places.
0: (laughs) Sasha, thank you so much. Stay on the line because I want to talk more about some of the responses you've had to your work. But um, uh, for, for free subscribers, I'll wrap it up now. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching that episode of Maiden Mother Matriarch and for all of your support. It means an enormous amount for the growth of the show. If you want to hear bonus content, an extra 20, 30 minutes of conversation with the guest, maybe a little bit more personal, a little bit less filtered, then you can go to my Substack at louiseperry.substack.com where you can sign up for extended episodes and also bonus episodes and you can also access our chat community. You can also support the show by subscribing on YouTube or subscribing wherever you get your podcasts and rating and reviewing on Apple Podcasts is also really great for encouraging other people to give the show a try. Please also spread the word, tell people that you know who you think might like it to give it it a shot. Um, The word-of-mouth effect is really valuable, so we'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, watching, and supporting what we're doing.